When I was a kid, I used to read these choose-your-own-adventure books, and uh, you know, I would stick my thumb in there at that fork in the road, that decision, and I'd keep on reading, and if I kind of felt like, oh, this isn't going anywhere good, then I'd go back, and I'd go, maybe I should go the other way, and and then sometimes I'd say, no, no, I'm not going to do that. i got to stick with this decision. I made the decision. I have to stick with it. And i just go through. And then you flip the page. And it's like, you died. You know, you fell off a cliff. Ah! And you go back. You start over. I used to read those books. They were a blast. Um, now there's a lot of choose-your-own-adventure um, games. You know, the, you know these uh, role play, kind of role-playing games. Uh, it was downstairs. My boys were playing uh, the, uh, what is it, The Legend of Zelda. Uh, the new one, The Breath, Breath of the Wild. And so I'm watching them, and it's, it's almost like a choose-your-own-adventure book, but it's in game form where they get to a point, like, okay, well, before we do this thing, you know, quick, save it, you know, before we, because who knows what's going to happen next, you know, and um, choices, you know, life is full of these choices where we wish it was like a choose-your-own-adventure, um, where it's like, oh, boy, this doesn't seem to be going well. I'm just going to go back three decisions, and we're going to go in another direction. And we just, wouldn't it be great if we could just have the wisdom to just bat a thousand in all of our decision making with our relationships and in our places of employment and on campus? And it'd be great if we had that kind of wisdom, but we don't. And our lives are full of opportunities for, for choices and the need for wisdom. And uh, we want to live with wisdom. We want to be people who are wise. And as the children of God, Resting is great grace. Not only do we want that for us, we want that for our kids. We want our children to grow up and to make wise choices and to live with wisdom. This fall, we're going to be unpacking wisdom literature. We're going to be looking at it through the lens of the grace of grace. We're going to look at the wisdom of the book of uh, Ecclesiastes through a cross-shaped lens. How do we look at you know one of the wisest? Uh, men, kings, philosophers throughout the Old Old Testament. How do we look at what he wrote through a cross-shaped lens through the grace of Christ and allow that to guide our lives? But before we do that, it's going to take us all fall, pretty much up till Christmas, to kind of work our way through that book um, because there's a disparaging difference between Solomon's wisdom and mine. It's going to take, you know, and even then I'm not even close. But it's going to take us a while to work through it. We're going to take our time. But this morning, our text is going to be Proverbs chapter 1. Because I want us to orient ourselves around this thing called wisdom. This thing, when we say the wisdom of God, or I want to be guided by the wisdom of God um, as a child of God. What does that really mean? And Proverbs 1 is a good, a good orientation for, for wisdom and the problem that we have with wisdom and the challenges that come with that. And so we're going to be looking at that uh, this morning, Proverbs chapter 1. Because um, Solomon was... Uh, son of David, who's also foreshadowing Jesus, who is the son of David. Solomon was the king, foreshadowing Jesus, the greatest king. Solomon was wise, form, foreshadowing Jesus, who is wisdom of God personified. And, and so as all of God's wisdom is culminating in Jesus, we're going to look today at Proverbs chapter 1 to see how the gospel of, of Jesus, the good news of his grace, culminates in our lives in a way that kind of manifests itself in a gift of wisdom where we are guided through the many opportunities that we have in our decision making. Proverbs chapter 1, first nine verses. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand the words of insight, 
to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and the riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is God's word. Now, throughout the book of Proverbs, we constantly find these offers to give wisdom to fools and the weak. And there's this constant appeal to the fools and to the weak. And in 970 BC, when the Proverbs around then, when they were written, nobody was reaching out to the fools and the weak. You ignored the fools and the weak. The strong oppressed the fools and the weak. But our God, in his great grace, comes to the fools and the weak. Because as it turns out, in comparison to him, the fools and the weak is the only kind of people there are. And so in the radicality of the gospel, we find, we find here in Proverbs, the whole tone is wisdom crying out, and she is crying out for us, the fools and the weak, to come and to hear and to listen to her words. Wisdom is personified throughout the scriptures as this woman, this wise voice of a woman crying out in the streets. For us to hear. Now, Proverbs cries out, and you're going to find it 25 times throughout the book of Proverbs. It refers to the reader, those of us reading it, as my dear son. Now, the immediate immediate context is that Solomon had a son, and his name was Rehoboam, and he was an idiot. So you've got a very wise man writing to his son, hoping and praying that his son will not be an idiot. So that's the immediate context for why it's continually saying, my son, my son. Solomon definitely has his son in view, but not just his son. Because the Proverbs were read very broadly. So here we are on the other side of the cross, the grace of Jesus Christ scandalously given to us as Christ pays the penalty for all of our sin, gives us his righteous record. And because of Christ's wisdom and perfect obedience, we are called children of God. And so, ladies, don't be offended when the Bible calls you a son. Today, it would be offensive to be called a son. But in the ancient world, in 970 BC, referring to everybody as sons was very scandalous because only sons got the inheritance. And the Bible is continually reminding women that men and women get the inheritance. In the ancient world, women weren't worth anything. So throughout the scripture, being called sons of God was a way of poking the culture in the ribs. And saying, you know, actually the sons of God, the ones who are valuable, the ones who get the inheritance are the men and the women. So I just want to give that for those of you who may be new to the scriptures, uh, particularly the, the ladies in here, when we say, well, that's offensive. It's actually poking, uh, it's actually poking the ancient world in the ribs. It's saying that there's a great grace and inheritance that's coming to all the sons, meaning the, the men and women, not just the males. So 25 times, you and I get to read it now on this side of the cross, and we are... We are the child, we are the son that's being appealed to, which means that the whole entire book of Proverbs breathes with the spirit of adoption. The whole entire book of Proverbs has this thread of grace moving through it, calling us and appealing uh, to us to come and to, to receive. It's not just a cold collection 
of precepts. It's actually an invitation into marveling at the person behind the precepts. And so when you read through the Proverbs, you discover the tone is not, if you do this, you'll be my child. The tone of Proverbs is, let this guide you, because you are my child. And so this is the tone that the text takes. As Westerners, we tend to look at Proverbs kind of like fortune cookies, ancient tweets, little quick quips and tips. Hey, here's this little bloop, there it is. Whoa, that one's a good one. Let's make that a bumper sticker. Um, But in the ancient world, these Proverbs, when you read the book of Proverbs, they culminate, they grow, they build. They were discussed, they would sit down and, and, and see how the wisdom unfolded. It wasn't simply kind of the way that we kind of sort of read it today. Wisdom literature builds, which is why we're going to take all of the fall to unpack the wisdom literature of Ecclesiastes. Because Ecclesiastes is a book, it's like an essay written, and it's, he's got a thesis at the beginning, and it builds, it builds out. So Proverbs 1 is a, kind of orients us towards how this wisdom literature works. So we're going to look at two things, really, from this text that we just read. We're going to answer two questions. What is the wisdom of God? And then secondly, how do we, as children of grace, learn to walk and live in the wisdom of God? So first, what is the wisdom of God? Well, in verses 1 to 4, the text itself describes it, uses a bunch of words here. Words like insight, righteousness, justice, equity, prudence. The Hebrew word for insight is banah, and banah means uh, to see something with distinction, where the average person may just be seeing a big blur. They're kind of broad-brushing a problem, but a person of wisdom sees with distinction. Um, have you ever watched BBC's Sherlock? Sherlock comes on the scene. The police are in the room, and they're like, Some, there was a break-in here, or something happened. We're not... You know, we're not quite sure, and they, they can see broadly. And then Sherlock comes in, and he says, oh, wait a minute, there's scratches on the door, which indicates that there was a struggle, but the struggle, but the scratches are very high, so obviously it couldn't have been a child, it had to have been a girl. But look at the length, oh, maybe there was fingernails, it had to have been a woman, aha. And then and then and then takes you along this whole thing, you know, his deductive reasoning of Sherlock. It's seen with distinction. The average person is just like, I don't see any of this. And that's what banah is in Hebrew. It's not just looking at the problems in our relationships, our marriage, or with our children and going, well, that's got to be this one thing. The, the wise person, the Spirit of God does this humbling work whereby we can see things in distinction. We're going to unpack this a little bit later. And so um, when you think about relational conflict, if you're, um, for example, if, you're, if you've been married for five minutes, then uh, you have a conflict with your spouse and you see a handful of reasons that happened, maybe one or two or three. But then if uh, the problem persists and you go and you see a counselor, a professional psychologist, the psychologist has seen so much suffering, so much hurt, so much trauma, that you saw two or three reasons why the problem was there, but that person of wisdom sees 12 or 14. And they begin to unpack these things. This is, that's the banal. That's the dis- seeing with distinction. If you consider things like uh, business is the same way. You're stressed in your business and you see one or two solutions. We could do that or we could do that. But a person who's had many businesses and over time, and you know, they see multiple, multiple solutions, multiple directions. This is, this is banal. This is what this is. Um, and so there's other descriptors too beyond this insight of wisdom. Words like righteousness, which is to do the right thing in the moment as God would define what is right. 
justice, equity, right? Prudence is to be practical, to be strategic. So godly, godly wisdom isn't just insight um, into what's going on. It's foresight into if I make this choice, where is this going to lead? It's both insight and foresight. And this is what we learn when the Bible unpacks this wisdom that's being offered. And that's pretty good. I don't know about you, but I think I could use a little more insight in my life. I could use a little more foresight in my life. Um, I could use that wisdom. And uh, so the wisdom of God is having this insight and this foresight, this competence to deal with life because life is nuanced and everything isn't uh, very clear to us all the time. And, and the wisdom of God is being able to do that with a depth of character. It's the ability to do that with a, with a godly character. Because as the children of grace, we have an innate desire to resemble our Father. We want to bear the family's resemblance. So in the 1500s during the Reformation, Luther said it this way, you can't grant the conclusions of grace, which is that you're scathed scandalously because of Jesus alone, and then deny the conclusion of grace, which is that you would want to somehow resemble the Father. So we've, we're, as children of grace, this wisdom is something that we would want, something that we would desire. But as you can guess, as we begin to read these first few verses, this comes to us through a life, it's a lifelong journey of renewal, it's a lifelong journey of reform. Wisdom isn't something that we, uh, that we just gain overnight. It's formative prayer as we pray, it's going through times of suffering, it's wiping our tears and looking back and having the Holy Spirit show us how our naivety or our selfishness, selfishness led to what it led to. I mean, it's over the course of our lives that God in his great grace used a variety of things that we can look back on that he begins to build wisdom in his children as we begin to become more humble, more repentant, more loving, more selfless as he does his work. These are things that happen as God shows us the dark and unevangelized places in our hearts where we can recognize and say, my poor decision-making did that. The poor decision-making of others did that, and now I'm living as a consequence of that. Wisdom takes time. Wisdom of God. The wisdom of God isn't mystical enlightenment um, that we can kind of unlock through a quick and easy prayer. And that's how I treated the wisdom of God pretty much my whole Christian life. I don't really know what God's word says. I don't really care. I'm not really reading it. I'm not, uh, if, I'm, if I feel fine on Sunday and I don't have to wash my hair, maybe I'll go. I mean, as a kid, this was kind of my whole thing. But then every time a problem would arise, I was like, oh God. Oh God, what should I do? Should I do this or do that? That's not wisdom. That's looking for a some sort of divine mystic technique for problem solving. And that's not how wisdom works. And so as we read through this text, we go, what, what actually is the godly wisdom? We realize, wow, I can't get that overnight. I can't cheat the hours. There's a, this is just going to be a process of God doing a work in my heart and in my life as he begins to build these things uh, in us by his grace. And so there's good news about this wisdom, but the bad news comes first. And the bad news is that... Um, there's foolishness in all of our hearts. We want to be guided by the wisdom of God, but there's foolishness. The, the, the Proverbs also say, as you get later in the book, they say, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. In other words, I've got a particular way that I deal with life. And left to my own devices, I'm just going to keep, that's going to be the only thing I have going. And I can't be a wise person because, you know, as the old adage goes, I'm going to just treat every problem like it's a... Like it's a nail because the only tool in my tool belt is a hammer. That's foolishness. 
It doesn't mean there wouldn't be a context when a hammer would be good. It means that saying I've got a hammer and the whole universe should conform to my hammer is foolishness. That's not the way life, relationships, friendships, work relationships, marriage, none of it works that way. And so there is good news for us, but the bad news is that there's this foolishness. So we want to live by the wisdom of God. We want our children to live by the wisdom of God. And you know, a good place to begin is to explore our own capacity for foolishness. So this proverb opens up with the first four four verses and says, here's what wisdom is, what the wisdom of God is and what it looks like. This great insight, this foresight, this capacity to deal with nuances, with godly character, to look in a situation and be like, I want very much to to, uh, live to the glory of God. But how do I do that? Well, we have to start by looking at our own potential for foolishness. And so in this passage, we're actually given two different forms of foolishness. The first form is simple foolishness, and the second form is stubborn foolishness. Verse 4 is simple foolishness. It says the simple. In the Hebrew, the simple is uh, a word lipteam, which means it's a form of foolishness resulting from being naive and easily seducible. A simple fool will believe anyone because they need the acceptance from everyone. That's what this particular kind of fool is like. I'm going to believe anyone... Because I need the acceptance of everyone. That's what the simple fool is. The second fool is in verse 7. Not the simple fool, but this is a stubborn fool. And this person despises the wisdom and instruction. In the Hebrew, the word is avil. And if that reminds you of the word evil, it's because of where we get our English word from. The stubborn fool is avil. It means that they're set in their ways and they're useless to instruct. And we have the capacity for both of these things. We've been both of these things. There's times where we are both of, both of these things. The simple fool will believe anyone, but the stubborn fool believes no one. The simple fool craves acceptance from everyone, and the stubborn fool thinks they're smarter than everyone. The simple fool is consumed by the court of popular opinion, and the stubborn fool is consumed with their own opinion. The simple fool fears criticism, so they'll listen to anybody. The stubborn fool despises criticism, so they listen to nobody. And both of these forms of foolishness, they they cause us to embrace ideas or live our lives contrary to the wisdom of God, the faithful guidance of his word. And so to be wise, in the context of this, would be, okay, well, if I were to be wise, it would mean that I would have be able to see with distinction and nuance of when should I listen to this criticism and be humbled because of my sin has created a problem. So when should I listen to this criticism and humble myself? But when else should I recognize that this decision I'm about to make or this stand I'm about to take is actually consistent with God's wisdom and so I'm going to actually not listen to anyone despite the criticism. You see, there are situations where both are needed. So that's essentially what the wisdom of God is. The wisdom of God is having the insight and the foresight and the competence to deal with the nuances of our lives and to do it with the depth of character. That's the wisdom of God. But how do we learn to walk in the wisdom of God? When we look at verse 7, the text answers the question and it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. This fear is not a phobia. It's not a phobic fear. In the, Engli- in, the, in the old English, when the, you know, hundreds of centuries ago, when this was translated into English, fear meant different than what it is. We read fear and we think, ah! That's not what it means. It's not a phobic fear whatsoever. This fear is awe, reverence, worship, 
wonder. So to be wise cannot happen with a departure from the gospel, a departure from the grace of Jesus. Because if I depart from the wonder, if I depart from the worship, if I depart from the sense of awe, I'm departing from wisdom. This is where it all begins. It's not a fear that God's going to hurt you. It, it, if anything, our awe and our reverence and our worship is a fear that our wayward worship to some crazy thing will hurt the heart of the one that we love. If anything, that's the direction that, that the fear is going. It's this, it's this glorious sense of reverence for God. And so it's the beginning of wisdom because when you are in worship to God and we come and we gather and we recalibrate our hearts and our minds because our week is full of things and we come in here and all of a sudden that all fades away and we zone in and we come back to this place of reverence and awe and worship of his great grace. The scandalous truth that all of your sin is gone. He didn't just give you a clean slate. That wouldn't do any good because you're going to mess your slate up tomorrow. He gave you his slate. I mean, this is the, this is the scandalous truth that we come and we rest and we, in the wondrous awe that this life isn't all that there is with its sickness and its disease and its oppression and its injustice. We come in here and we get recalibrated. And you see, that is the beginning of wisdom because it liberates you from being a simple fool. It is the gospel of worshiping Christ alone that liberates you from being a stubborn fool. Why? Because the simple fool is consumed with what everybody else thinks. The stubborn fool is consumed only with what they think. But as we come in here and our hearts get unraveled, as we marvel at the grace of Christ, what we care most is what God thinks. And so our appetites get reordered. And all of a sudden we start to hunger after things on a different menu. The menu of the Lord and of his ways and of his wisdom. So that... As Luther said during the time of the Reformation, when we read the word of God and it says, thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that, the heart of the one that is marveling at grace says, I don't want to do this. I want to do that. It's a reordering that over the course of our lives slowly and gradually makes us wise. Because we're not simple fools. That in that moment, in that conflict, in that tension, we bow down. (laughs) to popular consensus and popular opinion. Or in a moment where we're being confronted by someone who actually has some wisdom for us, we're not obsessed with our own opinion. Really what matters to us most is God's, God's opinion. And so, the only way to not be constantly driven by what others think or shackled in the you know, myopic nearsightedness of what we think, the only way to avoid the foolishness of the world is to embrace the foolishness of the cross. It's the only way. What do we mean by this? How do we embrace this foolishness of the cross? The cross is foolish because Jesus is a king who doesn't come like any other king. Every other king in world history accrued power. And they shed other people's blood to to accrue or keep their power. Jesus comes and lays down power. And he sheds his own blood to usher in his kingdom. The cross is foolishness. And as we embrace foolishness, I'm telling you, friends, you and your children will start to look out on the world with insight and distinction. 
And things that, we, that really, really matter are suddenly not going to matter so much. And all of a sudden, things that should really, should really ultimately matter in the heart of God will begin to ultimately matter to you and to your children. Because over time, the beautiful work of this renewing grace as children of God is doing a work in you. Right? The cross is foolishness because God doesn't split the sky with a lightning bolt and say, get it right. The cross is foolishness because he comes as a no-name carpenter and he dies for us because we can't get it right. It's precisely counterintuitive to, to, to this world. But ultimately, the cross is foolishness because the God of the universe looks down on humanity and recognizes that our inability to save ourselves no matter how hard we try, no matter what little political savior or any other sort of cultural savior or relational savior or little shiny trinket savior we look at to save us, none of them can. And so the cross is foolishness because God looks down on us unable to save ourselves and he comes and dies. And he comes and says, you're so messed up, the creator of the universe has to come and die for you. But it's foolishness because he's willing to. And he does it. That doesn't make sense. Any sense. And this is why the foolishness of the cross is wiser than the, than the wisdom of man. You know, it humbles us to the ground and then it raises us to the sky. Wisdom in the book of Proverbs is personified as a woman. And she cries out that someone would listen to her. And then in Matthew chapter 7, she, she cries out in the book of Proverbs. And, and she says, whoever listens to my words will live in safety. That's what she says. And then in Matthew 7, 900 years later, Jesus says, whoever hears my words will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock and the storms are going to come and crash against his life, but he's going to remain firm because he's going to live in safety. Eternal safety. In Proverbs, the woman says, whoever hears my words will live in safety. And then 900 years later, Jesus puts the words of the wise woman in his mouth and he personifies wisdom. And he says, whoever doesn't listen to my words will be like a fool. He'll build their house on some shifting sand, some sort of nonsense. And the storms of life are going to come and bang against your life. And you're going to collapse and you're going to fall. And you're not going to live in eternal safety. Jesus personifies this wisdom. And so even at his birth, what happens? The wise men come and they bend their knee. That's the wisest thing to do. If there is a God, and he is real, and he created the cosmos, then logic says how he says life should operate is wisdom. And saying, no, I think I'm going to make up my own set of ethics and morals as I go along, is just by sheer logic, if there is a God, foolishness. It can't be anything else other than foolishness and stratospheric stubborn arrogance. We're either simple fools saying, listening to the cultural narrative about wisdom and going, yeah, I'll take that. Or we're stubborn fools saying, well, as long as God's way of doing things aligns with what I've already decided is the truth, then I'll do that. And both are naivety, stratospheric naivety. The wise men, they were the cultural, they were the cultural uh, shift, shapers. They were the thinkers of the culture. They studied the, star, the stars, the most complicated mathematics that there is, to study the cosmos. And they looked in the, at the babe in the manger and they said, we know who he is. We're bending our knee. That's wisdom. And so for you and I, to bend our knee at the foot of the cross as the wise men bent their knee at the foot of the manger, this is wisdom. 
This is what the children of grace desire. This is what we increasingly, slowly, over the course of our entire lives, by the power of his spirit and his word working together, church, this is what he is doing in you. This is what he is building in you. This wisdom. At the age 12, Jesus was astounding the teachers in the temple. They said, where did he get this wisdom? In the Gospel of Mark, the people listened to Jesus. They said, where did he get this wisdom? In Luke chapter 11, Jesus looked at everybody who didn't believe in him, and he said, one who's wiser than Solomon is standing right here, and he didn't even blink when he said it. And so if there is a creator of the cosmos, the wisest thing that you and I can do is marvel at that and wonder at it. And church, it would liberate your heart. Because that constant recalibration of worship reminds you that this world is not all that there is. And that frees you to use your gifts and your abilities as you leave these doors and you go out into your lives tomorrow on campus or in work or wherever you are to bring your gifts to bear in the city, to bless the city, to bring your gifts to bear and whatever it is that you're doing on campus or with your friends, to just be a generous, outward-facing, loving, wise person that is not so myopic and wrapped up in their own life that they got to get it all now because this life is all there is, you are liberated from that because eternity is in your heart. Because you marvel and you, you wonder and you're amazed that the God of the cosmos has saved you and you're his child and you're in his hand and no one can take you out. And when the reality of that grips you, the things in the world that, that yesterday caused you to shake in your boots increasingly more and more as you rest in his grace and as you come and you gather and recalibrate in the goodness and the awe of god that that fear that reverence that worship that wonder that's the beginning of your wisdom that's the beginning of your heart uh coming into a place of rest and a place and a place of quiet in a world that is not at rest and in a world that is not quiet jesus christ is the wisdom of god and according to the apostle paul the cross was foolishness Because by going to the cross for us and taking the punishment we all deserve away from us, Christ the King will one day return, restore everything, make every wrong thing right. He will end all evil without ending us. This is the wisdom of the cross. Because without the cross, the only way for God to do what everybody says, well, if there is a God, then why does it just stop the evil? Friend, he will. But if you're not willing to bend your knee at the foot of the cross, when he ends evil, that means ending you. Unless you're willing to stand in a line that says perfection. And I mean, regardless of what your worldview is, I don't think you'd be naive enough to say that you are. So it only stands to logic and reason that if there is a God of the cosmos, that he is perfection personified. This is the great goodness of the gospel for us. You know, I had a, uh, a professor. Uh, he's the president of Knox Seminary. And every time I got correspondence from him, he always signed it. Theos anoitos. And theos anoitos is Greek for God's fool. So he, he would send out uh, his correspondence and he would sign it. God's fool. And I, went, I thought, I wonder what it is. And I realized as... The, the, as the study went on, I know exactly why he's saying God's fool. Because everybody's everybody, somebody's fool. You're either culture's fool or you're your own fool. Or you're some other little God's fool or you're the God's fool. And so he would sign it. Theos and Itos. I'm God's fool. I marvel and wonder and I'm guided by the God of the universe and I bend my knee to him humbly. 
so that I can have insight and foresight for the, for the difficulties that are in my life, so that I can have insight and foresight for the tragedies that are in life, so that I can have insight and foresight and depth of character to handle all of the nuanced complexities of life. I bend my knee to God humbly as his child, knowing that my life is in his hands and that this life is not all that there is. So church, may this gospel promise give you hope and light that penetrates the despair and the darkness of your frustrations and your trials. And as the reality of this gospel increasingly grips your hearts, may you walk in love and humility and confidence and generosity, willing to live an outward-facing life in the city because you're a child of God, saved by grace, sheer grace alone. And may we bend our knees as at Christ's cross like the wise men bent their knees at Christ's manger. And may our awe and our worship in our wonder at the grace of God, increasingly lead our hearts into the wisdom of God. Amen. Let's pray.